You're listening to episode 26 of Rainbow Baby, a podcast documenting a journey of pregnancy after loss. I'm your host, Taylor Bates. In May 2018, my first child, Ellis, was stillborn at 31 weeks for unknown reasons. In the depths of unimaginable grief, my husband Hunter and I knew we wanted to try again. Since then, we've experienced new pregnancies and more loss. We're still hoping for our rainbow baby, which is a baby born subsequent to a miscarriage, stillbirth, TF, MR, or the death of an infant from natural causes. I want to share my story with you because life after pregnancy loss can be so isolating. You'll also hear conversations with others who've walked this path before me. This episode features my conversation with Rachel George and her story of miscarriage, infant loss, adoption, and the recent birth of her baby, Miles. Rachel shares her definition of a rainbow baby, which is more complicated because of her experience losing her two rainbow babies, Clive and Winnie. Through the unimaginable grief of losing two newborns to unrelated heart issues, Rachel and her husband found the courage to continue to pursue their dream to grow their family. They went on to pursue adoption and welcomed their daughter, Corey, into their family. Through the years of these experiences, Rachel began writing her book, Grieve, Create, Believe, as a way to not only process her own grief through telling her story, but also to help others do the same. Rachel is honest in her sharing, and I'm in awe of the realness and resilience of her faith journey through some of the darkest times. You can support this podcast by taking two minutes to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and also by purchasing one of my day-by-day rainbow lapel pins. For me, rainbows have become a symbol of hope through my journey of pregnancy loss and grief. The pin not only symbolizes my hope for a rainbow baby, but also my hope in something greater, that I am taken care of even when it seems like everything is going wrong. The pen serves as a wearable reminder for you or a loved one to take things day by day through pregnancy loss, trying to conceive, pregnancy after loss, or any other difficult situation. You can get 10% off by purchasing one for you and a friend with discount code FRIEND10. Okay, here's the episode. Today I'm here with Rachel George, and I'm so excited to have you on this podcast because um, I actually came across your writing um, about two years ago through Hope Writers, which is an online community of writers that I had joined about six months after um, my baby Ellis was stillborn, and um, yeah, I saw you had made a post and I think you were like maybe early into your book publishing journey, but I remember kind of flagging you and making a note and saying like, I need to connect with Rachel at Mm -hmm. some point. And so here we are two years later and, um, it's just super cool. So, um, I like to start out by asking all my guests um, what their definition of a rainbow baby is because I know everyone has different experiences um, and different kind of interpretations of that term, whether, you know, positive or even negative, and that's totally okay. So um, I'd love it if you share your perspective on the term rainbow baby. All right. Um, Well, like many people, I feel like my perspective is... um you know, just a little bit nuanced, a little complicated, um, because 
I lost rainbow babies. Um, so I had a, like a miscarriage first and then I had two full-term babies, um, that both died. Um, not, not twins. Um, so they were rainbows too. And then I also adopted, um, a rainbow. So I feel like all my babies are rainbows, but, um, yeah, my definition would be, you know, a baby born after loss. And, um, I was just thinking about it today and I even feel like personally that I would extend it to, um, the idea of a kind of just this, um, this new life coming into a family. And I've even seen in, um, my friends' lives at times when maybe a different family member has passed away, like a parent or a sibling or something. And then a new baby comes into maybe the, the, the larger family unit. Um, and I really think that there is like a, you know, a rainbow aspect to those um, special babies as well. And of course, every baby is such a gift and so special. But um, I think the uniqueness of, you know, that term, the rainbow baby is um, there is just this this tenderness that you hold a little closer in that life. Um, and I think less of a chance to take it for granted, less of a chance to um, be focused on all these like externalities of um, pregnancy or parenting and really just um, coming back to a lot of the love. Not that rainbow babies are perfect, not that parents who have rainbow babies are always focused on the, the heartfelt things, but just this unique um, perspective, I suppose. Thank you. So um, I know that your story is, um, you know, there's so much nuance to everything, just like how you shared your definition of a rainbow baby has a lot of nuance to it. So I'd love for you to start out kind of from the beginning mm -hmm. and tell us about, I know your journey started with miscarriage, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and then you had two other babies who ended up dying of unrelated issues mm -hmm. um, after they were born. And then you went through adoption and then recently in 2020 had mm -hmm. um, another biological baby. So yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd love it if you'd start by just talking us through your journey. Sure, sure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. I love sharing about my um, babies and my family. And um, for me, connecting with other people has been like a huge part of my loss journey. So um, my grief journey and my healing. And so um, I just hope, you know, as people listen to this, they can feel less alone in whatever they're walking through, um, even if it is really different. Um, so um, my husband and I met in college and we got married just after college. And um, we waited about five years to start trying to have a family. Um, I really wanted to pay off my student loans and wanted to work for um, a chunk of time. And I really wanted to take off. I was, I'm a teacher, um, but I really wanted to take off some time when we had little kids. So, um, so yeah, that was kind of the plan and people around us started having their babies. Um, and it just seemed like left and right. All of our friends were always getting pregnant literally the first month they tried, if not by accident. <laughs> and so, um, as we prepared kind of 
to start trying, we're like, okay, well, it's probably going to happen right away. You know, we've been really careful um, for those five years to not accidentally get pregnant. And um, so anyway, we, if you hear any little noises, I'm actually wearing my little six month old right now in a carrier. <laughs> you might hear some little grunts. He's so sweet. Um, but we, so we kind of thought, okay, we're probably going to get pregnant right away. Like we just need to wait until we're really ready. And I was even kind of trying, trying to time it so that I would end a school year and everything. Um, and of course things work out always <laughs> way different than what you expect. Right. Um, it's funny looking back on those times where oh like you think about, I'm going to time it so perfectly. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. Um, so we started trying and it took quite a while to get pregnant. Um, the first time it was nearly a year. Um, and in that time, I think because we had like paid off some stuff and I don't know, we had just really settled into our town. Um, we decided to open a coffee shop in addition to our jobs. Um, we're like, okay, let's just do this. I don't know. I don't know what we were thinking. Anyway, <laughs> the coffee shop still exists. That's not my husband's main job. Um, but that's kind of intertwined in, in our story of our family because owning a business is, it's like having another child in some yeah. ways. Um, just so involved and so personal and, um, anyway, and, and very demanding. But, um, so we started, you know, getting ready to open this coffee shop and I think it was a good thing to have something to focus on that year that we were trying to get pregnant. And, um, then I got pregnant and, um, my sisters were both pregnant at the same time, my sister-in-law and my best friend. Mm. And, um, so I just remember thinking, oh, okay, you know, that's why it took so long. Like I get to enjoy this time with all of them. And um, after about six weeks, I started cramping and spotting um, and we went in and they couldn't really find a heartbeat. They're like, well, it could be early. You could be off. So come in again. And honestly, I feel like I've walked out a lot of it, but in the end it took about four appointments in order for them to like fully finally say like, mm. no, this is definitely not a viable pregnancy. Um, by then I think I was just so we were in the middle of opening, <laughs> opening the coffee shop, like doing construction. And I, think wow. I was so emotionally worn out from going into all these appointments that um, they said, you know, you can just pass the baby at home. It's, it's, you know, very small, never really developed, or you can, you know, come in for a, you know, a DNC. And I just decided I'll pass the baby at home. Um, and I knew some other people who had a miscarriage and it wasn't, um, it wasn't like a brand new idea to me that, you know, babies could die early on. I actually had known several people and, um, so I talked to some friends and they were really comforting and, um, but it still felt very, very lonely because of course I hadn't shared about the pregnancy and, there was like this really wonderful thing going on in our lives and this excitement of opening our coffee shop and, um, and then losing, you know, this baby that we wanted and loved so much. Um, so it, it took a while for me to pass the baby. I think, um, after my last appointment, it was like an, another full month until mm. I actually had the natural miscarriage. So I was just kind of waiting, um, and for me, I don't know if that was just what 
my way of handling it, I guess. I felt like going in was just going to like be too much for me to handle going into another appointment. So, um, so I did pass the baby naturally. Um, and that was quite an experience and, and really difficult. Um, but my mom was able to be with me for that. And, um, I just remember, you know, feeling so alone after that and feeling so, um, most people didn't know that we were walking through that and I didn't really know a way to share. And, um, I felt really angry because I thought, well, the hard part was that we had to wait for this pregnancy. And I thought that everything would be fine after that. And, and then it wasn't. And all these people that I loved were also having babies, um, do around the same time. It just felt really confusing. Um, so I spent quite a bit of time, very angry and numbing myself. And, um, finally, you know, I would say several months later started to work through some of that, those feelings and, um, and did end up sharing about our miscarriage in a blog post. Um, and that was kind of the first, I guess like public thing I had shared about that. And a lot of people reached out to me after that. And I think it was felt very freeing to release those emotions, um, to actually kind of wait until I was in a healthy place to release those emotions. I think that was a good thing for me not to just share too much of the raw uh, rawness, although I, I do appreciate that when other people do that. But for mm -hmm. me, that was what I needed. Um, and then I guess it was about six months after a miscarriage that, um, that I got pregnant again. And so we thought, okay, you know, this is, here we are. This is for sure. You know, we've been through the hard things like waiting and, and, um, struggling to get pregnant and a miscarriage. So now, you know, this is where it starts. And, um, for most of the people I'd known who had miscarried, of course, some of them had had multiple miscarriages in a row, but, um, I hadn't really known anyone who had lost a baby that was in like third trimester or anything. Um, so when we, we went to the first appointment, um, I just remember hearing, his heartbeat and just like this calmness spread over the room. Like, okay, we're, we're clear. There's a heartbeat. This is great. Um, and so that was our son Clive. Um, and he, we got pregnant in the fall and he was due in June. So I was working that whole, um, time as we prepared for him. And, um, we set aside some really special times. We went to a natural childbirth class. And I just remember those, even though we were really busy with the coffee shop and with our jobs and um, everything, I just remember those nights being really special because we would just talk about him and about getting ready for him. And um, my husband, Sam, is just a wonderful friend and partner to me. And um, it was just good to have that time to really focus on him and we ended up taking the class kind of early um just because the instructor we really wanted was doing one kind of early so we ended up finishing it i, I want to say by the time i was at i don't know 26 or 28 weeks um and everything was progressing great we found out he was a boy we were excited we hadn't named him yet but we had you know a few names that we had picked and um and then I went to um, my 30-week appointment alone. wasn't a, 
ultrasound appointment. It was just a regular appointment. And um, I did the glucose test at that appointment. And I just remember I'd taken the drink and then they checked the baby on the Doppler. And um, my doctor asked me a few questions about like caffeine and sugar. And um, it's kind of like, I don't know. I don't know why she's asking these things, but um, she said that the baby's heart rate was really fast and he had an arrhythmia. She wanted to check him out. And um, she was originally going to have me just do an ultrasound there, but she's like, actually, I'm going to send you straight to the hospital. And um, I just remember asking her, oh, but I already did the glucose test. Like, don't I need my blood draw or something? And um, I think she just kind of like looked at me like, honey, you really need to go to the hospital. <laughs> do you need help getting there? Do I need to call somebody? You know, um, I think she, she knew I didn't understand like what was going on or that it was kind of mm-hmm. serious. Um, and so I called my husband, he met me there. I drove myself there. Um, cause we live about 45 minutes from that hospital. Um, we live in a more rural town. So, um, so yeah, went in and, um, Clive's heart was, you know, acting funny. So I thought it was just going to be a one, one night stay or something. But, um, anyway, long story short, um, he had, a, a SVT, supraventricular tachycardia, which is, um, a rapid heart rate and he had an arrhythmia and they never really found a reason that he had had this. It didn't seem like it was a structural problem or a genetic hmm. problem. Um, just a very, persistent, um, electrical problem in the heart. Hmm. Um, and I didn't even know hearts could have electrical problems. You know, you learn everything when it's your kid, you just start to take note of every little detail, every little medical thing. So, um, so we were actually in the hospital for five weeks before he was, or sorry, not five weeks, um, two and a half weeks before he was born. And then five and a half weeks after he was born. Um, so I really never even went home after, wow. um, after that appointment for two months. Um, I did, sorry to interject, but yeah. did the hospital have, um, like a space for you guys to stay? Because I actually know now in San Antonio, I have a friend who's created a foundation and they, mm-hmm. they, um, raise money to install, special rooms for parents who are going through, you know, horrible yes. times like that. Yeah. So I'm always curious, like, did yeah. you have that kind of support? We did. We, um, so while I was still a patient, um, Sam just stayed with me in the room. So I was a patient for like two and a half weeks on monitoring. Um, and then we were actually transferred to a hospital that had a children's hospital. So it was a little further from our house, about two hours. Um, they just really wanted the high level NICU for when he was born. So, um, there it was amazing because the NICU had private rooms and I'm just so grateful for that because, um, it just made all the difference that we could stay. And, um, usually Sam slept in the room with him because I was having to get up and pump and, um, and everything. So after he was born, we had, you know, um, five and a half weeks with him and, um, we were able to stay. We, we very rarely left overnight. 
Um, and then, but we did have a place that I was sleeping. Um, it was like a family house. It was kind of run by the hospital, by a charity. Um, and it wasn't free, but it was very discounted and just a wonderful, wonderful place to kind of have as a home base during this time. Yeah. Yeah. It was really helpful. So, um, yeah, it was a really long, it was a long stay. And, um, like I said, they were monitoring me for those two and a half weeks. And then they just decided at, when I was, um, I was just about 32 and a half weeks pregnant. Um, they decided it was time for Clive to come out. Um, the treatments that they were trying to do to, to help his heart through me via the placenta were not working. So, mm. um, so he was born C-section. Um, and we just thought he was the most beautiful little baby in the world. And, you know, looking back, we know like how sick he was, um, upon birth, you know, he had to be intubated and there's just a lot of medical stuff, but, um, and it was touch and go for a couple of days, but I don't think we even realized how hard it was. I think we were protected in some ways from, um, some of that. And, um, so they tried some different treatments, um, the heart condition he had is very treatable. It often requires um, oral medication. Um, when kids are big enough, they can have a, um, a laparoscopic surgery done that is um, very has a high success rate. But he wasn't big; his veins weren't big enough yet to mm. have that done. Um, so. As time progressed, um, he got to kind of progress in a lot of normal NICU baby things. We did bottles. He got to wear clothes. I mean, he was just doing amazingly well. So strong. So joyful. Um, but they did, the cardiologist, you know, told us, like, we're not really seeing a change in his heart. Like, the medications that usually work are not working. Um, so they had to try different ones and combinations and increasing and, um, what ended up happening um, at, in the end when he was, yeah, he was doing really well, we kind of felt um, like, you know, there was an end in sight as far as like a plan. Um, but he ended up having a, like a cardiac event where he crashed and um, it was at a time that we weren't there. It was overnight. They called us in and, um, they said, you know, we're having heart trouble finding his heart rate. You know, he's having this episode. And um, so we rushed in and I just remember they, them telling us like that they were going to have to rush him off to surgery. And um, we knew it was very serious, but it just was kind of this um, very flustering event where the peaceful um, situation of the NICU where we had just been like caring for our baby and changing his diaper and giving him bottles and rubbing his head and holding him completely changed. Um, we walked in there and there's just like this team of people working on him and they, they took him away to surgery. And, um, that day was the longest day of my life as we just mm. waited for hours and hours. And, um, Finally, they told us, like, you know, he survived the surgery, but we had to put an external pacemaker in, and he's on the ECMO machine, which is a life support machine. And um, the only other time I'd ever heard of that machine is that we had 
um, friends, close friends who had a five-year-old son who had a medical problem and um, ended up being on the ECMO machine at the end of his life. Mm. And it was at the same hospital. And I remember we went in to see Clive at the end of that day, you know, after the surgery was done and they allowed us to finally see him, we walked into the room and it was, it was the exact same room that our friends were in with their Mm. son, um, the same room that he had died in. And I just knew at that point, the seriousness of this, this is the critical care room. This is the one, um, where the sickest children are. And, um, we had about 10 days with Clive in there and a lot of ups and downs, you know, there was some hope and then there wasn't, and then there was, and it wasn't, it's just such a roller coaster in the hospital. I'm sure. Um, but in the end, he just, he made it clear that, um, his body had just had sustained too much damage during that cardiac episode. And, um, he just really was shutting down and, um, so we said goodbye to him um, on June 6th, and he was 39 days old at that point. And um, I would say, you know, he was, his, we had watched him deteriorate so much that in the end it felt, I suppose, like a little bit of an act of mercy to just release him, to know that, like, in his death, he was free. In his mm-hmm. death, you know, it hurt us that he was not going to be hurting anymore um, because we saw him physically in so much suffering. Um, But I try to reflect back a lot on those really positive weeks that we had with him. We had about three weeks and he was just the strongest, most joyful, beautiful boy. And, um, and even though we had to have the suffering and, to release him. Um, I'm still so grateful that we knew him. I'm still so grateful that, you know, he changed us, that he was our, our firstborn son. And, um, I would never, ever, you know, want to give up the, the chance to have known him if I could take away that pain. Um, so in, after that, we just kind of entered into this grief period, and we knew we wanted to get pregnant right away, but I'd had a C-section, and we just, you know, I don't think anyone else except for a parent who has experienced loss can understand how quickly you want to have another ch- child. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I, I remember feeling almost embarrassed by that. Like, people yeah. won't understand. They'll think that I just want a replacement, but I don't. I just... I do want another child. I want a child to raise. I want, you know, um, so I I think we kept it a little bit hush hush how, how much we knew that, you know, we wanted that, but we had, we had had these parenting experiences and, um, gotten to do some quote normal things with him. And we just, we knew, we knew how much we wanted that. Um, and so after about six months, which was still on the very early side of what my doctor wanted. Um, we did get pregnant again, um, this time with a little girl and, um, everything was going really well with the pregnancy, no reason for concern. And then we hit the same 30 week appointment and Sam decided not to come with me because <laughs> everything was oh. good. 
<laughs> and I don't know why, you know, it's just kind of crazy. But yeah. Um, and I think we had had a lot more, you know, ultrasounds and stuff at this point at this whole pregnancy because we were with specialists and everything. Um, and they they saw some fluid on Winnie's brain, and they, um, you know, just said, okay, well, we're just gonna monitor this. You know, it could be a sign of something. It could be a sign of, you know, something like Down syndrome or something like that. We hadn't had any genetic testing done because we just thought, okay, this isn't going to change your outcome. So, right. um, so I remember when they said, you know, she might have Down syndrome. I was like, okay, it's fine. I can totally embrace that. Like I work with kids with special needs. We've considered special needs adoption. Like I was like, God, you know, that's cool. We're good. I don't mind at all. Um, having a beautiful child with special needs, um, and so we just kind of, okay, let's roll with it. And um, then in the next appointments, you know, she just wasn't growing as much. But still, there was never much mention of anything, like, very concerning. They're like, we'll just see at birth, you know, what what might happen. And they didn't even talk to us about NICU stay or anything. Um, I think we were very hopeful that there wouldn't be one. And um, we were very hopeful to have a, a V-back. So I'd had a C-section with Clive and we really wanted to have a, a, a vaginal delivery with Winnie. And um, part of that was because um, we didn't want it to, we knew that there was only a certain amount of C-sections that my body could have. And we didn't want to limit our family size um, based on surgeries. Um, so we thought, you know, we'll try for that. And if we can, then we'll, you know, that's great. And if not, and that's totally fine too. We just wanted whatever was safest and um, best for um, for her too. So um, I was able to have a VBAC. I remember looking and looking and looking for blogs or podcasts about VBACs after loss and not finding one and thinking, mm-hmm. oh, maybe I'll have that, that one. <laughs> and, um, and I did. I had my little rainbow girl, um, and I just remember holding her after she was born, and just everything felt perfect and peaceful. And um, you know, they did her Apgar, and they're like, "Okay, she scored pretty low. She needs a little oxygen. We're gonna take her to the NICU." And I honestly, I didn't even care. I was like, "Okay, that's great. Like, we did this. We're good. We're good." Um. So Sam went with her and. I got to see her a little bit later that evening. Um, and then, you know, a couple other things started to happen and we started to realize that there was more going on. She had a seizure. And mm. um, so I think in the next few days, we realized that she probably had some neurological um, things going on. We talked to a neurologist and I just remember her, you know, saying that my experience doing um therapy with kids with special needs, especially infants and toddlers. Um, she, she was like, you're the perfect mom for Winnie. And she's like, and I know about your experience with your other son. And, you know, this is not a, um, a life threatening condition, Hmm. you know, it, and, and she's going to surprise you so much with all that she's able to do. And, um, so we just started to prepare for, you know, having 
a child with special needs and thought like about all the ways that God had prepared us for that. Um, because of her, because of Clive, they did do a scan of her heart and didn't find anything, um, anything noticeable. Um, but then at nine days old, um, she, she had been doing so well. It was so, so similar how it mirrored Clive, um, where we felt like we were just in the clear in so many ways. And then, um, we were just hit with this, um, tidal wave. And we, so we were gone that night, um, across the street from the hospitals where we were staying in a house. And, um, we, we got a call that they had had to intubate her, that she had crashed. Mm. And um, we found out later that she had um, a heart condition that um, basically was, um, I guess, I don't know, just unable to be seen on the, the scans that they had done. And um, one that, you know, is easy to miss. Um, it's just hard to see. So it's a, a critical area of her heart that um, when they go through this transition time after birth, um, a certain valve was too constricted and um, they could have treated it if they'd found it, they could have done surgery. Um, but she ended up dying um, pretty, pretty quickly. Um, by the time we got to the hospital from across the street, you know, she was, they were, she, they were kind of on their last, last efforts. Um, and that just felt, I mean, unbelievable. We, we just never dreamed that that could have happened to us again, um, in such a different way, but in such a similar way. And, um, it was just, you know, a horrible, horrible dream basically is what it felt like. Um, and all of the kind of peace that we had had in releasing Clive and knowing that he had been in heaven, um, you know, we didn't have that with Winnie. It felt like she was just ripped from our hearts, ripped from our arms. And, um, it just, we just felt so broken. Um, and the doctors really couldn't connect anything between the two, um, deaths. They were both heart related. Um, for sure, but very different heart conditions. And um, one was electrical, one was structural, one was related to some other issues, Winnie's with her neurological problems. So, um, so I, I mean, we asked them like, okay, like, should we not have kids? What's going on? They did a full range of testing on us and on Winnie. And we did find out what, you know, exactly the condition that she had. And, um, but there was nothing that we were carriers for. Hmm. Um, so, you know, we just kind of went into this grief process for uh, quite a while, but still, you know, like I mentioned before, we just knew we really wanted to have a family and it felt like it had been, you know, almost two years of full pregnancies. Yeah. And then, um, plus the year of trying to get pregnant before that. And right. it just felt so long. Like it had been such a long journey um, already. And um, so we thought, okay, adoption's the next step for sure. We, we never um, 
we'd always kind of considered doing adoption, but we just never knew when it would be. So we decided to pursue adoption and um, wanted to do infant adoption specifically. Um, we had a failed match early on in our adoption process, mm. um, which was really hard again. Yeah. And it kind of felt like, what is going on? Like, right. You know, can't someone protect us from this? And um, I guess, you know, if anyone is considering adoption after after loss, I would just really recommend, you know, just using a lot of caution with your heart. And um, I think I expected that other people would know how tender we were and would really protect us or would be... Um, just really forthright about their intentions and um and I don't hold negative feelings towards the mom who decided to keep her baby I totally you know I give her credit for you know deciding that and for having the strength to do that um but at the same time it just felt like why did you bring us into this really early if yeah. you you know if you were going to change your mind in the end so, um, so then we were like sure that we were going to do this, like just have the agency be the buffer for everything, which was what we wanted in the, in the first part, but this mom had reached out to us We thought, okay, well maybe we will. So then we were sure we were going to do the agency. And then, um, again, somebody else we didn't know, um, reached out to us and her sister was having a baby in about six weeks. And we thought, oh, I don't know, we can't do this again. But then we thought, well, it's only six weeks. Like, she's really late in her pregnancy already. Like, you know, we can wait six weeks before we, like, start pursuing things with um, with this other agency. So we did – we had to use an agency for the whole adoption that um, has to be done legally, and it's definitely essential. Um, but we basically found our own match in that way. So um, – so yeah, we adopted our daughter, Corey, um, uh, about a year after Winnie died and about mm -hmm. nine months after we started the adoption process, which was kind of cool to think that she was born when we were kind of making that decision to adopt or she was conceived then. Mm -hmm. um, and there were some ups and downs in the early weeks with her before the um, final paperwork was signed and um, I don't share all of that to scare anyone. And I also don't share all the details because, you know, cause Corey is still alive and that's her story. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, you know, if anyone's considering adoption, I would just say, just, you know, be really careful with your heart. And, and if you can, you know, wait to bring the baby home until everything is signed and, um, the, the parents have, you know, have basically terminated, terminated their own rights, then, um, that's just a, such a better place to be in, um, emotionally, especially after loss. There's just, just a lot going on. Um, so but the beautiful thing is with Corey, we got to be in the hospital right after she was born. Um, we got to spend time with her as a newborn and, um, you know, now we have our own, bi another biological child. And I will say 100%, we 
love our adopted baby just as much. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there is no doubt in my mind that she was meant to be in our family and she wouldn't have been in our family if Clive and Winnie had lived. And it's not a this for that kind of thing, but, um, but we get blessed with her and she's, she's three now. Um, and just such a joy, such a, uh, you know, attitude <laughs> right now with her little teenager mindset. But, um, but she, um, she is such a joy and I, I don't feel like um, there was anything less than with yeah. it being an adoption at all. And, um, we have a positive relationship with her birth mom. We send her pictures and do a little bit of messaging here and there. And, um, there's a lot of like peace and um, love in that relationship. Um, so I, I'm just really, really grateful um, for her, her decision to, to choose our family. And um, yeah, it's, it's been amazing to get to raise this little, little one. And um, so after, I mean, moving along in all of that, after, she was, I don't know, uh, a year and a half or so, like deciding what we want to do and um, felt like we wanted to try again to have another baby. And um, there was a lot of thought put into that. And I think I think I knew that that was what we were supposed to do, but I felt really, really scared to tell anyone because I just – I knew how it would feel if I had a friend who had lost right. two babies as newborns. I would think, don't do it again. Don't do it again. Your adoption was fine. Just stick with the adoption again. Like, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? But um, Did you ever have any of, of that actually happen or were those just your fearful thoughts? Those were my fearful thoughts. You know, I, I had one person say something to me. Um, it was actually a client that I was working with. I was working with her son and she had lost a child. Um, and I think she was just one, she was really young and she didn't have much of a filter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, she just said something like when I told her about Clive and then Winnie, she's like, I can't believe you tried again. Mm. I mean, I never would have tried again. And this is even before, I was trying again, again, <laughs> but she was talking about Winnie. She was like, I just can't believe you tried to have another baby after you lost one. That's just, you know, she just kept going on and on and on. I yeah. was thinking like, stop, stop talking, stop talking. <laughs> and I've learned to, to handle those situations um, right. pretty gracefully and quietly and just kind of shake my head and think they just don't know. They don't know. Yeah. You know, I've probably said really, really, stupid stuff at times too. So, um, but yeah, it was mostly in my head. Um, and I just had to get over that and I, you know, and had to, had to step into the idea. And I have to remind myself this a lot that like, no one's going to understand. You have to just get comfortable with being misunderstood when you've lost a child. No one has had the same experience as you when you've lost multiple children, when you've, um, adopted a child when you've, you know, all these different things, no one understands the, the 
specific path that you're walking and and you don't have to try to explain it all. You don't mm-hmm. have to try to justify or explain or I don't know. Like it's very hard not to because, you know, that defensiveness can rise up, but um but I think I just had to kind of say like it's okay. This is what we've decided and and we were very supported um in it and um so we we chose to get pregnant again and I, I don't think it took us too long. Um, that time, I don't know. I, it, it feels like all the dates blur together, but um, yeah. Then we got pregnant with Miles. He's six months old now. So um, we found out we were pregnant about a little over a year ago, um, and we were excited for sure, but also very, um, I think, just leery. Um, you know, we kind of went back and forth between being like there's no way this could happen again. But then we're like, well, there's no way it could have happened both times already either. Right. So um, just kind of moved forward carefully, cautiously. Um, I had a lot of, um, I think I had a lot more anxiety during my pregnancy. Of course, we also had a toddler. Um, so it was a little different. I feel like I didn't have amount the amount of um, time and capacity to just focus on um, on him. But at the same time, I think that there was some good in that. Um, and I was working my book at the time. That was a big, mm-hmm. big project pretty much during his whole, my whole pregnancy with him. And, um, I had, all, I had really bad insomnia. So I would, I would be up like all night, a lot of nights working on it or just, I don't know, writing or reading. Um, and I just remember having trouble thinking ahead. Like I could talk about like my book came out in January and I could talk about that and he was due in February and everything was like, if, if this happens, if, Mm -hmm. if we take him home, if, 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 and I really um, couldn't say much with certainty because it just felt too, um, too tender to put my my hope out there but at the same time I knew and um, was able to really um think back on how like if I hadn't allowed myself to love and put my heart out there I would have never experienced any of my children's lives and um I think it's like C.S. Lewis says something about to love it all is to be vulnerable and it's just that mindset of like, yeah, any love. I mean, even getting married, that's such a vulnerable place because somebody can break your heart. And um, and to have a child is such a vulnerable place because, you know, they can hurt you or they can die. And um, anyway, it felt, um, it felt like the risk and the love just like um, really – outweighed all the fear and I had to work pretty hard to fight fear um but I think I tried to funnel that into you know working on working on projects and um parenting and just you know some other things mm-hmm. um and things progressed very normally for that that whole pregnancy um we decided to have him in um, two hours away at the children's hospital where Clive was born. So 
we had had Winnie at the regular, they had a NICU, but it was just not the level three NICU. Um, we had her at the hospital that was closer to us. And then we decided to go all the way um, out of town to have um, Miles this year. And I think that that was a good plan. It just felt like we were, um, we were somewhere where we could get that cardiac care, where we could do different things. Um, and in all of my pregnancies, I did feel like my babies were in my bodies. They were safe. Um, nothing really had happened to them aside from my miscarriage. Nothing had really happened to them when they were with me. Like I, I was their protector. Um, and I know that's a unique experience because not everyone feels that way, but, um, Clive and Winnie both died or, or had their cardiac events when we were gone from the hospital overnight Mm. when things were seeming good. And, um, it's just, yeah, it was very hard when, when Miles was born because I think that, you know, for some people it's like when a baby is born, you think that you're kind of through it and there they are and it's better and it's all good. Um, and we were able to have another vaginal birth that was induced, had him 12 hours later. It was a really, really beautiful birth. Um, Winnie's birth was beautiful too, but, um, but I think it was overshadowed by the fact that she died a week later. Um, but Miles' birth was just really, really, really beautiful. And, um, I remember my husband just his, he was flooded with relief after Miles was born. Um, I could see it. He was crying when we got back to the room, um, later that night, he fell asleep and I had in my mind basically decided that I wasn't going to sleep until Miles's heart was checked. Mm. I didn't trust putting him in the nursery. I didn't trust him with anyone. <laughs> so I stayed awake that whole night after wow. I'd had the baby holding him and just looking at him and making sure he was still alive. Um, and it, he had the test. I think we found out about the results, like the, the end of the next day. So it was about 24 hours after he was born. So I really didn't rest at all. I was in high, high gear. Was there a reason that they had to wait to do that test? Um, it was just, um, it's like an ultrasound of their heart. So I think it's just, you know, having it ordered, you know, he was born at night and then they came and did it the next day. And then they had to have someone look at it and, you know, the results didn't get in until the afternoon. So yeah, it was just, I don't think anyone knew how important that was to me. And I probably didn't communicate that. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't sleep, you know, mom, after having a baby, you need rest. Um, and I wasn't prepared for certain things like for breastfeeding. I just really hadn't like prepared myself for those kinds of things because I just, I thought we were going to maybe stay in the NICU again. And I just had kind of put myself, all my hopes, you know, aside. And so breastfeeding was really hard for me in the hospital. You know, when you're in the hospital, they're coming in every 10 minutes, it feels like to check on something. And, um, and I was just beyond exhausted. So I feel like, 
even after he was born, I kind of had a hard time really like feeling relief or feeling um, excitement. I mean, I was definitely excited and very, very thankful, but it didn't feel real at all. Um, and I don't, I don't even know, I think it was a gradual like awakening to life after that. Like after we got home, I was definitely grateful and excited, but I think it took me a long time to kind of feel like this is actually here. He's here. And this is actually what life is going to be like, and he's going to stay. And, um, I think I was very, very guarded, especially, you know, when we hit the, the amount of time that, that Winnie had lived and the amount of time that Clive had lived and he looked so much like Clive and just so many things like that. Um, so, you know, if, if anyone is listening and feels bad that when they have a rainbow baby, it's not all rainbows and joy, <laughs> you know, it's, it's okay for it to feel really, really complicated and everyone's journey is really different. And even, like I said, I feel like my husband's journey, um, and his experience was completely different than mine. Um, and that's okay. That was, you know, we're different people. And, um, so yeah, six months out, I think I have a little bit more perspective on it and can look back and, and see, you know, a lot more of the, um, the goodness and all of that and the goodness in the delivery. But, um, it was, you know, it was a really complicated time. And, um, and I think it did affect my like mental health in that time and um, definitely affected my milk supply and mm-hmm. different things like that and um, took a while to get in the groove of things. And I think, you know, there's this, there's this element of I wanted to be treated like a mom because I was a mom, you know, of two other babies plus an adopted baby. But then, you know, this was the first time I had ever gotten to breastfeed a baby and so it felt like I didn't want to ask for help but I really needed help and I didn't want people to think that I wasn't less of a mom but I also um I don't know I was probably proud or embarrassed or something so there's just so many levels of everything feeling complicated because you've done some things before but you haven't gotten to do other Mm -hmm. things in any sort of normal fashion and um, I just remember walking out of the hospital and I was thinking, wait, this is it. <laughs> like, he's ours. No one's going to, like, check on us or anything, you know. Because <laughs> we adopted her. So we had checks and, we had, you know, there's just so many more things going on. And I just remember thinking, like, this is a lot of responsibility just, <laughs> <laughs> um, just getting to take him home. And this is normal that he will just get to take a baby home and just raise them and there's no complication of like health things or um, legal things. So such a blessing to be able to have our little, our little guy. And um, it's been an adjustment with a toddler and him, but we're, you know, we're doing better now, six months later. And, um, and I, I still feel hopeful. You know, we, we want to have more kids. Um, We don't know how that's going to be. You know, I, I would love to have another pregnancy. We'll see. We'll see. You kind of have to be open-handed with um, with life at this point. <laughs> but um, but I just I do feel really really grateful to be able to raise the two kiddos that we get to raise and um, and that we have Clive and Winnie 
in heaven and you know we have hope that we'll get to see them again and no matter what our lives are so so touched and changed by them now um Clive would be five he'd be going into kindergarten this month which mm. is um such a tender thing because I taught kindergarten and mm. this is my favorite favorite age um and sometimes I have to just push those thoughts away and like not sit in the sadness too much um other times I can enter into it and allow myself to go there and um I am grateful that I had not that I, th- I think it, there would have been some comfort in having um children before I had lost a child you know because you have a child to hold and um and all of that but there was some some other level of um ability to be selfish with my time and my grief and have a ton of space to process and Mm -hmm. I think that helped me a lot um especially with two two losses and just you know a lot of trauma in all of that um so you know it's everyone's story is different. And some people, if they have a big family and then they lose a baby, um, it might be years and years before they're able to have time and space to process, but that's okay. Like, um, our feelings are still there. Our, all of our, you know, memories are still there. They don't, they don't disappear and our love is still there. It doesn't disappear. And I know there's so much I still have to unpack from all of it for years to come, but, um, yeah, overall, I'm just very, um, I feel like I'm in a good place right now today. Yeah. (laughs) And, and some days it's not that that way. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. Very okay. I have so many questions floating through my brain because Um, you just hit on so many things that, you know, touched my heart. And mm -hmm. I think you named something I've been feeling, you know, now that I'm in my third trimester with what we hope will be, you know, a rainbow baby for us. And, um, but just that concept of, um, what does motherhood look like when Mm -hmm. you've had babies? I've, I've given birth to a baby, Mm -hmm. but I haven't mothered a living child. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, those, those thoughts of like, you know, I'm, I want to be, I want my motherhood acknowledged. Yes but I also need that help. So I'm yeah. really glad you've, you vocalized that because I think that'll be something now that I can carry with me mm-hmm. into the hospital, into postpartum and just know like, it's okay for me to ask for help mm-hmm. and it doesn't make me less of a mother. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure that's, you know, a very common experience, especially for women who the losses happened before they were able to mother a living child. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thought that I had was, you know, kind of with, the, the idea of um, you wouldn't have Corey if it weren't for Clive and Winnie. And um, I've had those thoughts with this current baby that I'm pregnant with of like, I want him to know that he's not just, you know, he, he's not filling a void or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's like we, we, want, we wanted him as much as we wanted Ellis. Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't think it has to be um, – either or like those things can kind mm-hmm. of there's space for all of those feelings yeah. and um but yeah I, I think that's also where some people struggle with the term rainbow baby because mm-hmm. it's like oh that I don't want to think of my first baby as a storm mm-hmm. 
and or and or the second baby as like a replacement or you know something that was like a band-aid for that pain Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just it's complicated but I think it's important to to name those things and talk about those feelings and yeah um because it you know I don't know if I'll ever even be able to like explain that in a pretty way Mm -hmm. but I hope that it's just a conversation that I can have you know with this little guy when he's older and it feels right you know we can talk through those things Mm as I'm sure they'll have questions um and yeah so in your book um I did take a lot of notes of just like things that you wrote that stood out to me um and in your introduction to your book you talk about um, this experience of sitting in church and um, kind of questioning mm-hmm. questioning your faith, really, right? And, um, you know, I guess there was a song being sung and it was just hard to identify with the words that were being sung because you'd just gone through this horrible tragedy. And, um, and then you looked around and saw other people um, in the church who were also going through great suffering and they were still able to have that faith Um, And so for me, you know, I was raised in a pretty conservative Church of Christ and um, have had to kind of negotiate all of those um, ideas that I was raised with. And and it's actually been a really, grief has been a really great way for me to sort through my own relationship with God and actually figure out, like, what do I believe? Mm -hmm. And if anything, you know, amazingly, I never would have been able to imagine this happening, but my faith is so much stronger and, and so much more grounded and, and authentic mm-hmm. than it was before going through, mm-hmm. you know, the worst thing that had ever happened to me. And so um, you, there was a quote that I wrote down. Um, it says, by ignoring my emotions, I risk stifling authentic healing as I conform to expectations of Christian culture. I might accept thoughts such as, God will never give you more than you can handle. True faith cannot be shaken. Everything happens for a reason. Without permission to question or express anger to God, a distant-hearted faith can develop. Um, And I know for sure I heard all of those kind of Christian cliches, um, especially that everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so I'd just love to hear, you know, you kind of expand on how you um, how you work through your faith journey, and I know that's kind of a big question, but maybe just yeah, yeah, yeah it. Um, I think a lot of it is captured um, in my book um, for just kind of how I unpacked, um, you know, working through um, my faith. But I think a lot of it was just giving myself permission to ask those kinds of questions, to, to give myself permission. Um, you know, if I view God as my father, um, it's not off the table for me to feel angry, to feel, um, to kind of beat my hands against him. You know, um, he can handle that. He can, um, he can take it. Um, and, I think I just had to allow myself the freedom to, to feel those things and to also um, try to give myself the steadiness of not allowing 
my emotions to change everything, if that makes sense. I think I knew, um, I knew that there was things I had to work through, but I also knew that some of the complete tenderness I was feeling was probably not going to be there all the time. And I, and I sense that in other relationships too. So I think I could understand how that related to my relationship with God as well. But, um, um, I feel like in other relationships and other conversations, it felt like little things would just set me off or trigger me or cause me to spiral. And um, a lot of that has to do with literally chemicals in my brain from trauma and my brain having to rewire connections um, from PTSD. And um, I think I just had to give myself a lot of patience and and while I was sorting things out with God and, and asking hard questions and, and giving space for that, I just had to be patient for the process. And um, for me, there were times that I didn't go to church, but then there was other times where I, I felt like it was what I needed to do to push through um, and hope that someday I wouldn't feel as hurt going, um, that I wouldn't feel like um, there was such um, emotional weight in um, in walking in the church and and in reading my Bible at home and in um, engaging in faith and and I can't even say I I remember some friends kind of pressing me on it at some point um, like when did it change and it I just had to explain to them like it was such a slow process that I can't pinpoint some, some point when it a hundred percent changed. Um, and I think that maybe some of that is just my personality. I don't think I'm someone who could say I a hundred percent know when I fell in love with my husband or anything like that. I'm just not that kind of, um, person that gets really swayed, um, easily, but, um, just a slow healing process and it's stuff that I still have to work through, but I feel safe, um, asking questions. I feel safe. Um, and I think I had to come back to in, in a lot of things. And I wrote this in my book. Um, you know, I would ask these questions and some of them felt really like deep theological questions, but my answers were so simple. Like, you know, how could God be good when this kind of thing happened to me? And my answer for that was like, because Winnie's good. Like Winnie was the most beautiful, precious, peaceful baby ever. <laughs> and like she couldn't have been made by an evil God. And I know that sounds like really such simple theology and it really is. But those were some, some of the things I had to kind of work through like in my own um, head and and also just kind of making that decision, like, do I want to live in bitterness? Do I want to live in pain? Or do I want to press forward to the light and to a place where um, there is hope and um, a huge encouragement for me and, and um, a challenge to me was reading some um, stories of other people. So our daughter, Corey, was named after Corey Ten Boom, who mm. was um, a Holocaust survivor. 
and just lived this amazing life. Um, she was a strong, amazing woman. She was older during the Holocaust. She was not a child. Um, and I read her book, and um, it's just amazing. Um, her book is called The Hiding Place. She helped um, rescue people, and then she was put into a camp herself. And, um, and um, so I feel like reading some stories like that were just um, – things that reminded me that suffering, suffering is there. Suffering is in this world. And I think in America, we try to numb ourselves. We try to avoid it. It's like anything we can do to avoid suffering. And other cultures um, tend to view suffering a little bit more as like a something that could refine you or sanctify you or shape you. There's some um, level of... Hmm, like purification or maturity as you walk through suffering. And in America, I think, or in some cultures like American culture, we tend to say, okay, how can I avoid pain? What's the way that I can just avoid getting hurt or being hurt? And um, I think once I've pressed into the fact that suffering is a part of life and I can learn from it and I can help people from it. um, I think God just revealed more and more, of how he was connected to all of that. Um, yeah, I've I've kind of noticed that within the loss community, and not just pregnancy loss, but there seems to be kind of, in general, two camps of people. And one camp maybe looks at their their loss and their suffering as, um, yeah, it, it's like they. They don't think that there's anything to learn, or that they're they don't they they don't need to grow from what they went through, mm-hmm. and and I kind of I can totally see why people would feel that way, and I was there definitely early on in my grief. I think that's just a natural part of the process, but I feel like people, some people maybe get stuck there, and at a certain point, I think to be able to to um, live again yourself, you have to start to, you know, work through that grief and, and find your own meaning in it maybe, and kind of create, create your own path and, Mm -hmm. and grow from that suffering. And Mm -hmm. there's, um, a quote by Richard Rohr that I love. And he says, the path to God is through great love and great suffering. Mm -hmm. And this is just a simple way to put it, but it's so true. You know, it's like you said, suffering is inevitable mm-hmm. for all of us at, mm-hmm. at certain points. And some people get it early on in their lives and some people have a bigger dose of it. But at some point, we're all going to suffer. So I feel like we have to acknowledge that, um, you know, you have to you have to work through it. You can't numb it, mm-hmm. like you said. Mm-hmm. You can't run away from it. And that is such a, a problem in our culture. Mm-hmm. But Um, I think your story really exemplifies that of just, you know, not only did you choose to have hope and continue on and, and, um, you know, keep trying to grow your family, which a lot of people would have been scared to do, Mm -hmm. like you said. Um, but even, you know, in your book, just showing how you can't run away from the grief and the pain and the emotions and like, 
your your I see your book as really like a workbook of mm-hmm. kind of guiding people through that process of what do I do with all this pain? Mm-hmm. Um, and something I learned early on in in my grief journey was that um, this kind of subtle difference between grief and mourning mm-hmm. and grief is is our just um, natural response to horrible loss and suffering. Um, and then mourning is the expression of that grief. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like your your book, you know, kind of guides people through that active process of mourning and like ex- giving the grief an outlet, mm-hmm. um, which is so important. And it doesn't it looks different for everyone, yeah. you know, um, but yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, another question I had for you was um, kind of related to like the Christian cliches that people say after you go through a loss, um, what was your, what was people's response? Um, once you had miles, like how did they did, you know, cause I, I kind of fear that people will think, Oh, Taylor's like, after I have this baby, they'll think everything's good. Or, mm-hmm. and maybe that's just a fear that's, you know, I don't, I need to drop, but what has been your experience? Um, you know, I think, there are definitely people who probably see it that way, but I think just as time has gone on, I've just felt a lot more freed from what people think. And um, yeah, I, I guess that that's probably the only answer I have. You know, I think that the people who are close to me know that there's a lot of um, pain still. But I think that, you know, from the outside, a lot of people think, oh, your family looks so perfect. You have a little boy and a little girl. And, you know, it, it's all evened out. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, but I think that the people who, who truly, you know, care for me and who I'm close with know a little bit more. And, um, as time has gone on, um, I do feel like things have just become more private for me. Um, and I think, I think I sensed that you said something along that line in, in part of um, one of your podcast episodes that there was some point where you thought, um, well, I can't just like go silent (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, people would, would worry, but there, there can be a little bit of a change at times where you feel like, um, maybe you just accept the fact that no one's going to fully understand. So striving for making, making people understand right. is just lessened. Um, so I think, yeah, I think those are all like elements of that. Um, but I think it, it like there's space for it to change over time. Yeah. And, yeah, I guess my grief has changed over time. So my expectation of what um, other people will think has also um, changed over time and, and become a little bit more private. Okay. So. Yeah. How long did it take for you to feel safe after Miles' birth? Because I know, like you said, you stayed up for yeah. that 24 hours. So when were you able to like sleep and kind of breathe? breathe? say maybe after that 
I, I think it got better after a few days, but yeah. then a lot better after probably about six weeks. Um, just because, you know, then you're kind of just like settling into some, some, a little bit more, um, routines and stuff and your body's starting to feel a little bit more like yourself. I mean, not, not, not yet, but, um, a little bit more. So, um, yeah, I think it took, it took a, a bit of time, but after, a, after, a, I would say five days or a week, I felt uh, a bit better. And then once we hit the milestones of um, how long Winnie had lived and how long um, Clive had lived. Um, yeah, we're talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked so, I mean, he still does, but he looks so much like Clive that there was just so many things to unpack with that too. Right. So, um, you know, siblings just, yeah, they look alike. We called him Clive a lot by accident, or I would mm. think that a lot. Which is such a wonderful thing, but also just so complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about it, that's something that, you know, a, a parent with two living children exactly. would do. So yeah. I can see how that would almost feel like kind of normal yeah. and nice. But then also, yeah, you, that it's, com it's complex because yeah. you're like, but again, you're not a replacement and all yeah. those kind of thoughts. Yeah. And it was hard doing some of the things that um, with him that I didn't get to do with five really, you know. There was bittersweet things. It's like this is amazing. We get to do these things with him, but also just you know reminds me of the things we didn't get to do um, with them. And um, so there's just yeah, there's a lot of bittersweet emotions, but um, mostly a lot of joy. Mostly a lot of joy, and then a lot of normal. I think a lot of very very normal parent things that I think. Um, and I think this, this touches on a little bit like what you were saying of asking for help. Um, you know, parenting is hard. And I think that there are times you feel like you need to be super mom <laughs> because you've waited so long for this. And you've um, prepared so long for this. And you've um, worked hard for this. It just, and, and then it feels like, when they're not sleeping or they're not eating well or um, you know they're not latching well like all of those things it's just so hard yeah. to accept that you are not going to be the perfect parent and they are not going to be the perfect baby right. and um, you know and Ellis didn't make any mistakes in his life like and Clive and Winnie did not really make any mistakes in their lives they were perfect you know and so then when I felt frustrated at Corey or Miles, it's kind of like, oh, okay, well, they're a child that is going to, you know, hurt me eventually in some point in my life that's going to disobey me, that's going to, you know, and I can't put five and winning on this pedestal of perfection and compare, um, compare them. That was helpful for me to, to kind of think through a bit. Yeah, that's such a good point. I was going to say, I really appreciated the podcast you did with your husband. That was, I don't know, yeah. it's just special. It was cool to hear you guys talk together. And um, yeah, I, I really liked that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's important to have his voice because oftentimes fathers are so overlooked through all of this. And like even in the beginning of our grief journey, just 
people were always asking, how's, t- how's Taylor doing? Even mm-hmm. they would ask him, mm-hmm. how's Taylor doing instead of how are you doing? Yeah. And, and so, yeah. And he's also more introverted than I am in general. So that even kind of exacerbates it, but mm-hmm. um, it's been really great that he's been willing and so supportive and like yeah. wanting to come on and talk about his feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I feel like it's, I hope that it's validating for other women, other mothers to hear, you know, just that, like how our experience, how me and Hunter both have a different experience Mm -hmm. or different perspective of the same experience, you know, Mm -hmm. because I feel like that's what really can drive couples apart is when you start to feel isolated within your own marriage Mm -hmm. or relationship. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes my experience was that I felt like I was grieving so much and that he wasn't, you Mm -hmm. know, or that he wasn't suffering as much as I was Mm -hmm. and, you know, which wasn't true. We were just grieving differently and at different times, you know, like, so, so yeah, that's been important to me to kind of make sure I give that platform Mm -hmm. to the dads too. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so one other thing that I wanted to ask you is, what would be um, advice that you have for parents who are going through pregnancy after a loss? I would say well, there's so many things to think through. Um, I would recommend trying to, trying to take the time to like work through some of the emotions and feelings and just um, try to yeah try to set aside time to for one another for preparing for the baby um, trying to set aside time to just feel like you can still parent and love the child that you lost um, because you are adding you know another child to your family but you still have uh, another child but who's not with you anymore Um Having hard conversations and working through some of the, like, what-ifs. And for some people that's helpful. For some people that's not. But um, just being, trying to be honest with yourself and with one another and giving time and space to those conversations. Um, And something that was really helpful for me, um, and I, I think I can really speak to this from um, the perspective of having lost a baby after um, after my first loss um, is to just allow yourself to love and allow yourself to um, not have your guard up entirely. Um, and I know that's going to look different for everybody. But um, there is not one tiny bit of myself that regrets the amount of love and um, the amount of effort that I put into my pregnancy with Winnie after losing Clive. I feel like I embraced, you know, every day with her. I was grateful for every day of having her um, alongside me and just, you know, I knew and, and 
you've talked about this on your podcast before, but you know, her life began as soon as I knew I was pregnant. And so then it's like that extension of, you know, um, all the things that I did when I was pregnant. I, I just, I can remember her and know, you know, she was with me. And um, I think there's a lot of people who think they want to hold back on their love and their attachment. Um, but it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt more if you are more attached. It really doesn't. Um, it's going to hurt really, really badly if you lose another baby. Um, so you might as well just try to embrace and attach and love the time that you have with them. And I know that that will look different and not everybody can do that um, as much, but just allowing yourself permission to do that and allowing yourself, um, you know, some things that are special. And, and those are things that, you know, no matter the outcome, which almost, almost all of the time, the outcome is good. And that's, you know, something to, people need to remember and cling to, but no matter the outcome, you know, just having those little things that you remember from your pregnancy, like what craving you had, and that will remind you of your, um, of your child. And, um, you know, for Winnie, it was chocolate malts and for Clive, I liked Oreo milkshakes, you know, just like these little things so that, (laughs) you know, if I want to remember them and we're going to get ice cream, like, you know, that's something special. And, um, and then um, just picking some, if there's something that you could pick, like a verse or a song. Um, all of our kids, we've picked verses and songs and, and symbols, too, um, that kind of go along with those. And I know it sounds like really intense. We're not like <laughs> crazy <laughs> people. but um, Hey, I have the crazy rainbow obsession, so I understand. <laughs> But it, it really gave us something to kind of cling to and um, just something to remember and, um, you know, focus on. And um, if you're able to, preparing a space, preparing a nursery, um, picking some special, you know, items that um, like a blanket or some clothes or you know, just some little things that are very intentional and special. And, um, yeah, I don't regret doing those things. Um, no matter what my outcomes were, I, I appreciate that I had those things because, um, even with the things that remind me of Winnie, you know, I'm glad that I took the time for that because it just has strengthened my connection to her in, um, and it's very special because we didn't have very long with her. Um, so I think, yeah, my advice would be mostly to, and if you can, if you find that you can, you know, take the time to embrace um, the love you have for your, your baby on the way and, um, and just hold on to, like, to hope and also reason, a lot of reason, to mm-hmm. coaching yourself through, through a lot of reason and, and statistics. And, you know, I know that sounds like, kind of silly but um you know statistically it's very very unlikely to lose another baby after a certain point in pregnancy so. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well that's all such good advice mm-hmm. and your story and your book are such a great testimony to just the power of kind of surrender surrendering to that vulnerability that comes along with love 
And um, I think I just love the way that you have honored your babies, all of your babies, um, through the work that you've done through your book. And I know that you sharing through this podcast too will touch a lot of people. And I hope that um, they'll also go and check out your book because, like I said, I think it's just such a great resource for processing your own grief no matter where you are whether it's been you know a week or two years like for me I just have found it as such a valuable resource even two years later Mm -hmm. um so I'd love it if you'd share how people can connect with you sure so um I'm on Instagram at Rachel George writes so um r-a-c-h-e-l-g-o-r-g-e W-R-I-T-E-S. <laughs> um, Rachel George writes. And um, and then on Facebook too. At Rachel George writes. Um, that's my Facebook page. And um, I enjoy writing a lot as a medium. I like talking, but um, writing is editable. And <laughs> yeah. I feel like um, I have a lot more um, clear direction. <laughs> with um with what I'm saying in there but um I do love listening to voices so podcasts are a a favorite of mine too um and yeah and I have a blog it's salmonrachelgeorge.com and my husband and I both write on there um from time to time and right now we haven't been doing a ton of writing um kind of spending time you know just with our family and um having time to just enjoy and not have to process through a ton of stuff. And there's a lot going on in the world right now too. So um, just a lot that we're sort of um, having space for. Um, But yeah, that's where you can find me and um, where I share stuff from time to time and love to connect with anybody. I, I personally read, you know, stuff that comes across and um my inbox or whatever and um love chatting with moms and just or dads but um mostly it's moms who um just need to connect and want to hear and you know if your if your journey is um you know has some things that relate to ours whether it's adoption or you know different things like that I'm happy to talk anytime so I just want to be very available and um yeah I look forward to hearing from anybody well thank you so much for your time here with me um it's been so wonderful to connect with you and I just feel like we're kindred spirits in a way um so yeah I really appreciate it and I appreciate just the generosity you've had with um sharing your story through all these different ways and making yourself available so thanks Rachel thank you so great talking to you and I I can't wait to see yeah see more unfold with um, with your pregnancy and um your baby in your arms so 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 exciting but I also know how hard it can be right now (laughs) you do whatever you need to do I hope this episode was meaningful for you to connect with me you can visit taylorashleybates.com and also find me on instagram 
Coming up next is a bonus episode with Rachel talking about the creation of her book, Grieve, Create, Believe, and her self-publishing journey. Please share this podcast with anyone you know who is walking through life after pregnancy loss, whether they are trying to conceive, currently pregnant, or parenting after loss. Until next time, I'm Taylor Bates, sending you peace and hope for your journey.